0: Well, it's my pleasure to introduce Tim Alford. Tim, as you know, is the national director of Limitless, Elam's national youth ministry. And he's also going to be speaking aside, aside Laura Hancock today. And uh, Laura, she's on team at Limitless, but she's also um, there working at Youth for Christ as the head of church resources. So would you put your hands together and give a massive Elam Leaders Summit welcome to Tim and to Laura. God bless you guys. Well, thank you uh, so much, everybody. What a huge uh, pleasure and a privilege and an honour it is to be able to come and share a few thoughts with you today. If I could just briefly add my uh, affirmation to the video you've just seen, I've been privileged enough to have a front row seat and and watch Dave and uh, the incredible faculty team at, at Regents reinventing those courses with the express purpose of making them accessible to you. And there is some Fantastic training on offer, whether you're a pastor, an elder, or a youth worker, or whoever you are. So I'd really encourage you to maybe visit the stand before you leave. Just find out about some of those modules. There's some really amazing stuff available to you. Um, If you're wondering what's going on uh, with my voice, um, (laughs) this isn't what I usually sound like. Uh, I'm not not trying to be sexy or anything. (laughs) It's just that I have two very young children. And so I am now a mere shell of the man that I once was. <laughs> so that's, that's what's going on here. But I guess if I was going to lose my voice before a talk, this was the time to do it because I'm amongst friends and I'm amongst family and I know you're going to bear with me. Is that okay as I uh, do my best to... Uh, and anyway, I, I've got to tell you, uh, even if you can't understand what I'm saying, I've heard Laura's bits and they're well good, so you're at least going to get half a talk today, okay, is that alright? So let's, uh, let's just jump into this, if you've ever, if you've ever been to a library, give, give me a hand in the air if you've ever been to a library, great, we've all got something in common, let's close in prayer, no, if you've ever been to a library... Um, Then you will have noticed a sign that looks a little bit like this one here. You'll have seen something like that in a library. But I don't know about you. I've noticed that librarians seem to be getting a little bit more creative with their signage uh, these days. For example, this one. Please do not stand, sit, climb, or sharpie on the sleeping students. (laughs) Cries carry in the library but the courtesy of those studying around you, please relocate to the stairwell if you wish to sob audibly. <laughs> and the stairwells of Regents are now a very sad place. Dinosaurs didn't read, now they're extinct. Coincidence? <laughs> and without question, my absolute favourite, which is this. The dropbox is broken Please visit Kathy inside to return the books. (laughs) Update, Dropbox is not broken. Kathy is just super lonely and wants to talk to you about her nine ferrets. (laughs) Love those. So here are some signs that I guess are not too difficult for us to interpret, but what Laura and I would just love to do as we imagine Elim's future together today is to talk to you about perhaps some of those signs that are a little bit more tricky to discern. And they are, of course, the signs of the times. But particularly to understand what these signs are telling us about our projected future. And we know, don't we, that this is important for us as Christian leaders. The Pharisees were rebuked by Jesus for their inability to be able to interpret the signs of the times. And the scripture says this of the men of Issachar. That all these men understood the signs of the times and knew the best course for Israel to take. And I believe the men of Issachar remain an example to us today. Why? Because they led according to an understanding of the culture in which they were ministering. And so, what are the signs of the times? What are the hallmarks of the next generation that will be filling and leading our churches in the future? On what ground are we playing out this fight? And what does this tell us about the weapons we must use to win the battle?
1: And so we are going to spend some time this morning looking at the raising of a young leader. Um, A warrior who became a king. So if you uh, have a Bible, uh, if you could flick or scroll with me to 1 Samuel 15. We're going from verses 10 to 13, and it says this. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. Samuel was angry and he cried out to the Lord all that night early in the morning Samuel got up and went to meet Saul but he was told Saul has gone to Carmel there he has set up a a monument in his own honor and has turned and gone down to Gilgal when Samuel reached him Saul said the Lord bless you I have carried out the Lord's instructions have you ever been in a situation where someone has completely missed the moment? So uh, maybe it's in a social setting, maybe you're on your lunch break, and there's a few of you stood around having a conversation and just chatting away, and all of a sudden someone says something, and it's really, really awkward, and you're all looking at each other to see if they know how awkward you think it is. And you catch each other's eye and you look at the floor and you think they have no idea the clangor they have just dropped. And there's just silence. And you know in that moment that they have totally missed it. You know, it has been said beautifully already, uh, this conference um, by uh, Chris and by, by Malcolm, let's not miss the moment here. You see, I believe that nationally we are in a moment, particularly when we think about young people and um, Generation Z, the generation below Generation Y and the Millennials. Do you know, even in these weeks, youth workers are meeting around the nation to look at what it means to do youth work differently, to empower young leaders, to, to see what it means to reach the lost in a totally different generation. You know, in in this story, we have an incredible moment with Saul where Samuel um, has this encounter with God, where God has told Saul to go and do something. Saul has totally missed the mark. Samuel comes before God and is devastated to hear that God is, is wanting to move Saul on. So Samuel is distraught. He spends the whole night awake pleading before God. And then he goes to find Saul, not only to say, um, you know, things need to change, but maybe to challenge him, to pray with him. But what he finds is that Saul has gone off to make a monument to himself. He's not where he's supposed to be. He totally misses the moment. Totally misses where his nation is at and what God is saying to his nation at that time. And, you know, when I hear things like this about don't miss the moment, what I want to do because of my nature is I go, right, okay, what are we going to do? Let's do something. Let's form a plan. However, in this passage, we see very clearly that, first of all, Samuel takes a moment to mourn. To assess the situation and to mourn. And so I want to spend a few moments now. Just assessing the situation and maybe giving us a little space to mourn. I mean, this sounds like a lot of fun this morning, doesn't it? We're going to have a great time. Um, there are some really interesting stats that I want to use to, I guess, paint a little bit of a picture for you guys this morning. Uh, national statistics around young people. Tim is going to bring some more specific ones later on about ELIM. Um, But did you know that 72% of churches in Britain have no young people in them. That, um, I work for Youth for Christ. Uh, my role there is Director of Church Resources. We've just la- launched a massive uh, piece of research. And in that, we found that only 32% of young people said that they actually believed in God. 61% of young people said that they knew that someone who was a Christian. And actually, they said really positive things about them. And only 18% were interested in finding out more about God. Now, I'm trying to, I'm teaching myself that that is a positive statistic. That's kind of one in five, one in six of that 61%. But when 61% of young people know someone who's a Christian, surely there is more than 18%. So these are unchurched young people. What about our churches? Well, um, there is evidence that would suggest that actually the faith that young people have today is weaker than it has been in previous generations. Nick Shepherd um, has said, not only are we seeing generational decline in faith, but to transition to a weaker form of faith. One where only 30% of committed Christian parents see it as being important to be proactive in passing on faith to the next generation. This is the faith young people have because it is the faith their parents have. This is our faith. Uh, There's another statistic which says that uh, only 50.2% of churches often discuss the basic beliefs of the Christian faith. Again, Nick Shepherd says, alongside natural decline, as members of the older generations die, the particular problem we still have is that young people are leaving the church. The first priority we have is to accept this decline as a brutal reality we face, to try to understand why it is happening and to do something about it. A steady stream of research indicates that this trend has been with us since before the 1950s, and it is deep, and it is continuing. It's important to know where we're at. It really is. But do you know there are stories from about of hope on the ground? And we are going to move on to those. It will get better, I promise. It's on, it's on the up. We'll move on to those stories, but I just want to take a moment to say that your youth workers, your youth pastors, your youth volunteers, they have a tough job. They are navigating uncharted waters currently, which want to work out how to best engage these guys. And they're on the front lines. And if you have uh, a youth worker or youth pastor with you, if you uh, know them, guys today, encourage them. Send them a message. Tell them that you appreciate what they put in. You know, I said that 72, 72% of churches have no youth work. There was a quote that says, conversely, churches with young people are twice as likely to be growing churches where they employ a children or youth worker. They are half as likely as other churches to be in decline. This stuff matters. And whilst it's hard to hear, it is vital that we acknowledge where we are. Because if we do not acknowledge the state uh, of play currently, then we are being like Saul. We are missing the moment. And so this morning, I want to say we are in a moment. Let us not miss it. Let us not just move on, but let us take responsibility.
0: So I've got a little boy. uh, uh, He's called Tobiah. He's um, three years old. And sometimes he uh, hits me uh, because, you know, he's a boy and I'm a terrible parent and... um, (laughs) (laughs) And when Tobiah hits me, I put on my extremely stern and fearsome parent face, like, (laughs) pretty terrifying, isn't it? The front row are trembling now. And I say, Tobiah, what are you doing? And he just looks at me and he holds up his hands and he says, just drumming, daddy. (laughs) And I say, ah, you're a good lad, aren't you? You're all right. Don't worry. Don't worry about it. See, here's the thing. In those moments, Tobiah cannot deny the circumstances, but he can deny responsibility. He can't deny that he hit me, but he can interpret the circumstances in such a way that he absolves himself of personal responsibility for them. And see, one thing I've learned about the human condition As pastors, you know this from the pastoral conversations that you have every week. Is that, isn't it true? We all have a way of interpreting the circumstances of our lives in order to absolve ourselves of personal responsibility. And as we return to our biblical narrative today, we find that this is exactly what Saul did. You guys know the story, of course. Saul receives an instruction from God via Samuel to completely destroy the Amalekites and everything, everything that belongs to them. But instead, Saul chooses to take the best of their livestock and to spare Agag, their king. And when Samuel then goes to confront Saul about his disobedience, sure enough, Saul interprets the circumstances in such a way to excuse himself of responsibility. 1 Samuel 15, 19. Samuel says to Saul, Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? And here it is. But I did obey the Lord, Saul said. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back Agag their king. The soldiers took the sheep and the cattle from the plunder, the best of which was devoted to God, in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God at Gilgal. And Saul interprets the circumstances in order to excuse himself of personal responsibility. Just drumming, daddy. And the result, but the result is that God removes the kingship from Saul. And in verse 35, we read that he regretted making Saul king over Israel. So what's the point of all this? Why are we sharing this with you? The things that Laura has shared with us a few moments ago are happening on our watch, and we must take responsibility. But the gravity of the human condition will lead us to convince ourselves that we've done something about it because we employed a youth leader. Or we comfort ourselves by saying, you know, Christ will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And we carry on doing the same thing that we've always done. But you know what we're really doing there? Just drumming, Daddy. James Emery White, uh, in his book, uh, Meet Generation Z says this that times have changed, culture has shifted dramatically, and unless we reach the next generation, the church will simply get older and smaller year by year until it is a shell of what it once was. My friends, this is happening on our watch. But. God has entrusted this Elim movement to you and I today, and we must, we will take responsibility. And so let me um, paint a picture for you of where we're at with young people and young leaders in our own movement for a moment, if I may. You've seen some similar statistics to this, I know, in business yesterday. Um, We currently have, in in our movement, by way of, of young leaders, we have 577 active EFGA ministers and MITs. Ministers and MITs, 577. And of those 577, those under the age of 25, well, there are three of those, which is less than 1%. If we were to broaden that to, of the 577, how many are under 30? Well, we have 28 of those in total, which is 5% of our ministers and MITs. And then if we broaden that further to under the age of 35, then we have in total out of those 577 active EFGA ministers and MITs, uh, 70 under the age of 35, which is 12%. Now that doesn't make great reading, but I'm loving the fact, loving the fact that we have here at our conference this year. 120 young leaders. Yeah. And you know, if I can just take us a little moment to speak to you, if it has been that perhaps even as you've been here, God has been stirring something in your heart and you've been saying there's something about this. There's something about these people. There's something about what God is doing among Elim. And maybe he's calling me. Can I encourage you? Have that conversation with your senior pastor when they get home. You know, there is a reason that they invited you here this week. Maybe it could be that God is calling you. Well, what about our churches and young people? We have 530 EFGA and ECI churches, not including Church of Pentecost, 530. And we know for a fact that 317 of those have got young people and some youth ministry of some kind. And... I know that that immediately sounds concerning, but that is 60% of our churches. And as Laura mentioned earlier on, in the, in the wider church in the UK, it's only 28% of churches that actually are reaching young people. So we actually have over double the national average in the ELIM movement. And I think that's exciting. I think that's something to, to celebrate. But of course, it does still leave us, we know for sure, with at least 110 Churches with uh, no young people in them whatsoever. And please, if that's you and you're in the room and you're leading one of these churches, please, this isn't to point you out or to embarrass you in any way at all. No, not at all. In fact, this is to say that we want to help you. And you'll know by now, I'm sure, about. This vision that God has placed on our hearts to pioneer a hundred new youth ministries through churches who are not currently reaching young people. And we've seen God do it in Malvern where we started with one. And last Tuesday before we came to conference, we had 22 15 to 18 year olds meeting. And we believe that it's possible. We believe that it can happen to pioneer these a hundred new youth ministries. But do you know something? It might not work. (laughs) It might not work. And if it doesn't, you know, I'll be personally responsible for that. Maybe it will go down in the annals of Elam's history as one of Elam's all-time greatest failures. But if it does, I'm okay with that. Because I'd rather fail in giving it a go than to hold up my hands and say, I'm just drumming, daddy. You know, if we, if, if we want something that we've never had, we must do something that we've never done. We will take responsibility, Elim. We will try to do something. We will stand up and say, not on our watch. And so if this message today is anything, then it is very simply an invitation for us together to be real about the facts and then to stand together to take personal responsibility and to say, not on our watch.
1: The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. You know what I love about this verse? It says, you know what? Things aren't great, but the time for mourning is over. What are we going to do? And I love that. So Samuel heads off to Jesse's house, gets his sons all lined up in a row. And uh, the first one steps forward, the firstborn, of course, the firstborn. And Samuel looks at him and he's like, "Hmm, nah, not that one. So the second one comes forward. Yeah. Do you know, it's not, it's not that one either. No, not him. Next one. No, definitely not that one. And all these sons come forward um, until we get to a point in verses 10 and 11 of chapter 16, where it said, Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? There is still the youngest, Jesse answered. He is tending the sheep. Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. You know, I'm aware that I don't know all of you guys that well. And so please forgive me if this seems a little rude. But this morning, I want to say to you, don't be a Jesse. Just don't. You see, what happened is Jesse was expecting God to do what he had always done. And so God was doing something, but he didn't perceive it. He overlooked the youngest, but what God wanted was to do something unexpected in the nation. And so God used the unexpected. And so let us not be like Jesse, looking for what God did before and waiting for the same again. You know, David, the youngest son, as you know, was from a different culture. He was sat out with the sheep and the goats and the bears and the lions. He learned to care for the sheep, to look after them, to have a passion for a community, I guess. Although it is a community of sheep, I don't know. Um, He learned to fight. He learned to fight off bears and lions. And do you know, God was preparing him perfectly for what he was going to be doing in that nation. God knew what he was doing. You know, you will remember the passage where um, David goes to meet his brothers on the battlefield and takes supplies. So he rocks up with his lunchbox and, you know, foot rub, whatever his brothers use. And uh, David turns up and he sees this Philistine. And David's moment as a young man to, to step into leadership arrives. And he goes to the king and says, Let me. He he goes to Saul and initially Saul says no, but David persists. If we read in uh, chapter seven, verses 34 to 37, it says, but David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried a sheep off from the flock, I went after it, struck it and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. And this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. Do you know that your culture prepares you perfectly for your calling? And so we as leaders have a role to perceive what God is doing, to look at culture and to say, what is God doing next? And how do we invest in young leaders, invest in young people that their culture might prepare them for their calling and what God is wanting to do next in this nation? Do you know I have the huge honor and privilege um, of being a part of Life Central Church in Hells Owen? Uh, My husband is the youth pastor there. And we see some of the traits of this younger generation firsthand. But do you know they are traits of hope? I am tired of people speaking negatively over young people and saying that the future is lost. It makes me angry. And so I want to speak some hope. I want to tell you some incredible characteristics that I am seeing in young people and are being seen throughout the nation. First of all, this is a generation who is desperate to make a difference. Their heroes are not people like Beyonce. They do not watch Britain's Got Talent. Their heroes are people like Malala Yousafzai who stood up for for women's rights in her country and were shot in the head. Normal people who stand up for things that matter. The narrative of films that they're watching are Hunger Games, Divergent, young people who are normal that stand up on behalf of a generation and stand up against the generation above them who have made bad political choices in their eyes and want to make a difference. And you know, I see this. um, Some of the best social activists and evangelists I know are under the age of 20. There are, there are young people who I sometimes have to avoid on a Sunday morning because they're going to talk to me about recycling again.
0: <laughs>
1: there are young people in our youth club. We have a prayer room in our youth club. And um, there are a couple of boys they're 14. And they drag their friends in. They sit them down next to the leaders who are on the prayer room. And they say, listen to what they have to say. I took what they're saying seriously for five minutes and it's changed my life. Go. And they look at us and we're sat there going, oh gosh, that's quite a lot of pressure. This is a generation who wants to make a difference. We need to allow them to do that. You know, this is a generation who are family influenced. In the research we did, 73% of young people who believed in God said that their family was the main influence on their faith. What does that mean for us as church leaders? This is the highest answer given. You know, uh, a few months back, we, as a church, um, did ProFast Feast, which was the Limitless initiative. Um, and we called our event Hungry, and we did this event, and we all agreed to fast for 24 hours. And at the end of the event, all the young people and the youth team were feeling very sorry for themselves because they hadn't eaten. Um, but what we found out was that there was a lad there who hadn't been a Christian for that long. His nan attended the church, and he started becoming because of his nan. And because he started coming, his mum started coming. And they had fasted as a family for three days straight that his friends might know Jesus. That has got to echo in heaven. Isn't it incredible? The power of what we can do when we are influenced and inspired by our families. This generation are creators of culture. Before this point... Uh, the older generations have been dictating what younger generations need to do, whether they need to fulfill a certain educational path or that kind of thing. Do you know, I, I constantly feel like I'm just trying to keep up. And that is because now it is the younger generations that are dictating culture, and we're trying to keep up with them. There's a huge influx onto Instagram at the moment, and we're just trying to work out social media and how that works. Bit awkward taking a selfie, but it seems like everyone's doing it. We are keeping up with them. They are setting the tone. Do you know, um, I hear very, very often frustration among millennials, frustration uh, about Gen Y, that they come to church, but they won't get involved, that they won't serve. Do you know the generation below them is totally different? Do not write them off in the same way. The last time we looked at our stats in our church for our youth group, 70% of our young people served in the life of the church. And do you know that they are some of the most committed and hardworking volunteers that we have in our youth team? Yes, great. It's also a generation that has this eight-second filter. They are so bombarded with information and data and stuff that they've had to kind of develop this ability to filter through it. And um, a goldfish's attention span is nine seconds, so you can read into that what you will. But these guys, they take in this information for eight seconds and instantly have developed this ability to know whether it's worth pursuing or it's not, whether there's authenticity or there isn't. But... After that eight seconds, if they decide that there is, they have the ability to be deeply focused and deeply committed. There's a 19-year-old in our church, and um, he oversees a lot of the media stuff. We have decided to start doing our discipleship teaching on screen uh, in our... Life groups because I will say something and they won't listen, and then I'll stand next to a screen where I'm saying exactly the same thing and everyone's attention is caught or whatever. Um, So we've started doing this, and this 19 year old is incredible. He is gifted, he is passionate, he is equipped. And he is so committed. He will be messaging us at 2 in the morning, showing us the things that he's done. And whilst my sleep finds that sad, I am so happy that he is so deeply engaged. This is a generation that is visually orientated, spiritually illiterate, but visually orientated and informed. A YouTube and Netflix generation. Do you know in 2015, uh, the Oxford Dictionary added a new word to the dictionary? And I believe it's going to come up on the screen. That is the, the 2015 word. Do you know language is changing? Young people speak in pictures and not in words. What does it mean for a a younger generation to be tired of words, but for God to give them a vision and a picture for their nation and for the lost? And what does it mean for us as leaders to move in that? Um, We need to imagine what this generation can do. You know, um, I, I heard... The best illustration I've heard about changing culture is comparing it to a change in the wind. Um, a few years ago, I went to Greece. I worked in Samos for three months. And uh, I, in theory, learned to sail. Now, I am so sorry if anyone in this room actually knows anything about sailing. I don't mean to offend you in the story that I'm about to tell. But it's inevitable that I will. So, um, me and my friend, we decided to take out a catamaran. And uh, we got on this catamaran and it's we sailed it out and uh i took the rope i know at one end by the sails and my friend took the other rope here and i've learned since then that you're apparently supposed to hold both at the same time you'll find out why that goes horribly wrong anyway we sail out and we're going it's lovely it's sunny until we hit windy corner ladies and gentlemen you can see where this is going and uh, we hit this corner all of a sudden there's this massive gust of wind that comes around i panic i scream because i don't understand what's going on i let go of the rope the rope uh goes everywhere the boat capsizes my friend ends up hanging upside down by one leg and ha- gets her leg caught in the thing she has to be cut out uh, it's all very very messy now I could have done something in that situation. As soon as the wind kicked up and changed, I could have got mad and got angry and shouted at the wind. But that would have made no difference whatsoever. Elin, we will be much better spending our time understanding the wind, learning how it works, using the wind, adjusting the sails, and getting the boat to where we want it to go. Let's not be a Jesse. Let's give this generation a chance, and imagine what it can do.
0: And so, as we continue in our yeah, <laughs> we continue in our narrative with Saul and with David. We come to the moment where you'll remember it. Saul is tormented by an evil spirit. Uh, an evil spirit from God, in fact. <laughs> I don't get that either. Um, <laughs> and he's tormented by an evil spirit uh, from God. And at the recommendation of his attendants, Saul sends for David to come and to play the lyre for him, hoping that this will bring him relief. And it's here that we rejoin the story in 1 Samuel 16. It said that Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, send me your son, David, who is with the sheep. And so David came and entered into his service. Saul liked him very much. And David became one of his armor bearers. Then Saul sent word to Jesse saying, allow David to remain in my service. For I am pleased with him. Saul brings David into his service as one of his armor bearers. This is really interesting to me when we come to think about raising up the next generation and the next generation of leaders. because so I think saw so, so there's something really good here. He brings David into his life as one of his armor bearers. And the, the role of an armor bearer is an interesting one because it was a very intimate one. The armor bearer was literally brought into the inner chambers of the warrior's life. That They were entrusted with huge responsibility. These guys weren't just armor carriers, they were actually advisors to the warrior. They knew their strengths and their weaknesses. They saw what they were like after victories and after defeats. They went into battle with them. They journeyed with them. They they fought together. They, They journeyed together. They literally lived and died together. And I believe... That if you and I want to raise up the next generation, and particularly the next generation of leaders in our movement, we need armor bearers. So can I ask you today to consider, who are your armor bearers? Who are the young people whom you have invited into the inner chambers of your life? Who know your strengths and your weaknesses? With whom you share your victories and your defeats? who journey with you, who go to battle with you. Those to whom you have entrusted significant opportunity and real responsibility. And I need to tell you that I'm convinced that I wouldn't be here today doing the job that I'm doing if it hadn't been for that kind of opportunity investment. Pastor Duncan, who um, leads Coventry Elim, where I used to attend um, in my late teens and 20s, Um, When when I was... the, The church... And it's grown since I was there. But when I was there, it was a church of about 600 people. And when I was 22 years old, I was preaching regularly in the main services. And then, when I was 25 years old, Pastor Duncan invited me to be one of the elders in the church. What would it look like to have elders in our churches who were in their 20s? Because I'm convinced... That I wouldn't be doing this today if it wasn't for that opportunity investment, you know? And so I'm doing my best now as, as, as I can to try and pass that on. There's a couple of guys at Regents who have asked me to, to mentor them, and it's been my pleasure to do that. They're here now on, on the Young Leaders track. And I've tried to do the same to entrust them with real significant responsibility. They lead our youth ministry in in the Source Church in Malvern. They're the ones that do it and they're doing a great job of that too. My point is this. You know, we can encourage young people. We can speak value into their lives, and that's great, and that's good, and that's important. But I found that reaching this generation is more about the opportunities that we give than it is about the words that we say. James Emery White says that they have endless amounts of information, but little wisdom and virtually no mentors. And that's why I believe it was significant when James Aladrin stood here yesterday and he said that one of the four things he believed we needed to invest in was children and young people. And he said that young people are looking not for preachers, but for fathers. Perhaps, Elin, we could do something about that. Perhaps your most significant contribution to the kingdom of God will not be something that you do, but rather someone that you raise. And so back to Saul. Saul is raising up David by making him his armor bearer. He's entrusting him with significant responsibility, even releasing him to go and fight the Israelites' public enemy number one, of course, Goliath. So it's so far so good for Saul in terms of raising up the next generation of leaders. But then, well, then something happens where it kind of all goes wrong. 1 Samuel 17, 38 says, Then Saul dressed David in his own tunic." He put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. And David fastened his sword over the tunic and tried walking around because he was not used to them. I cannot go in these, he said to Saul, because I am not used to them. And so he took them off. Listen to this. Then he took his staff in his hand. He chose five smooth stones from the stream and he put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag. And with his sling in his hand, he approached the Philistine. Saul dresses David in his own armor. And from becoming Saul's armor bearer, he now wants David to become his armor wearer. Friends, I, I... Honestly, I believe this is huge because I think this is where we could lose the next generation. When we expect them to do things in the way that we have always done them. See, the young people, the young people that we are seeking to reach and disciple today do not live in a world that is just slightly or incrementally different. They are living through discontinuously different social and technological and spiritual change. And if we try to dress them in our armor, if we attempt to enforce them to express their faith and express church in the way that we do, that is the place where we could lose them. MTV um, recently conducted a nationwide survey. And it was a survey of over a thousand respondents all of whom were born after the year 2000, Generation Z. And the question they asked them was, how would they identify themselves? How would they choose to label themselves or name themselves if they had the choice? And the name that they came up with for themselves was very interesting. It was this, the founders, the founders. Now granted, it's pretentious, (laughs) but it does tell us something about this generation. Laura's already touched on it. It tells us, That they will not wear our armor because they perceive that there is a need to totally reinvent everything that's gone before and to start over. And we can shout at the wind or we can hoist up our sails. what What I'm trying to say is this, we need armor bearers but not armor wearers as we imagine Elam's future together, as we seek to reach and to raise up the next generation, I believe we need armour bearers, but not armour wearers. We must allow the next generation to go out with a slingshot when we've been used to wearing a full coat of arms. If I can be even more explicit, I'm suggesting that the next generation should be allowed to reinvent Every aspect of how we do church today. Nick Shepard says that young people need to make sense of God in their own way and in their own world. And I know that that makes us nervous. But let me clarify by saying this. What I'm talking about here, and please zoom in at this point because I really believe this is important. What I'm talking about here is translation, not transformation. I believe that every leader here, you and I, every one of us, must embrace the challenge of translating the gospel into its unique cultural context. But that is very different from translating it into something that the scripture never intended. So whilst in some instances what we do is sacred, how we do it must remain very much up for grabs transformation of the message must be avoided at all costs. Translation, however, lies at the very heart of the missiological challenge that you and I must embrace today. How good was it yesterday when we brought our missionaries up onto this stage and we cheered? That was just such a wonderful moment, wasn't it? And those guys are, are an inspiration to us. I wonder if you could imagine with me that we were going to send out another missionary and we were going to send out a missionary into the darkest recesses of the Amazon basin to reach a as yet unreached people group. Well, I think, I think that we all agree on what a good missionary would do in that context. First, they would seek to learn the language of the people. Next, they would try to understand their customs and rituals. They would try as quickly as they could to translate the scriptures and particularly the message of the gospel into a language that they would understand. When it came to worship, they would undoubtedly seek to incorporate the musical styles and the musical instruments of that people group into their songs. They may even attempt to dress a little more like that people group, taking on some of their cultural dress. In short, they would do everything they could to build every possible cultural bridge to most effectively communicate Christ to these yet unreached people. Why is it then, church, that what seems so obvious, so clear, so simple to us in that missiological context is resisted by our churches today? Because make no mistake... This next generation is, in every respect, an unreached people group. They are. They are the first truly post-Christian generation. And we are in a missionary situation in our own land. And it's already been said twice before today. And so, I'm suggesting that what we must do is not only be open to change... But actually to allow the next generation to drive the change. Do you know what, Pastor? If I could just speak to my friends who are pastors for just a minute. You know one thing that I think you could do, which would be a brilliant thing, would be just to gather some of the young people in your church around you. Around you personally, not just around your youth worker or your kids worker. And to say to them, hey, tell me, how's Sunday for you? Does it engage you? Which bits do you love? Which bits do you find difficult? Where do you check out? And I really believe that that would be helpful to you. And not only to listen to them, but to allow them to drive some changes to your services as well. My friends, I believe that we need armour bearers, but not armour wearers.
1: And so as we come into land, I would like you to imagine. Imagine that it is the summer of 1513 you are on a battlefield. Just outside of Northumberland was one of the most significant battles in British history. It was called the Battle of Flodden. And there were two armies. At the head of one army was a king. He had 60,000 men behind him. The latest in weaponry. The highest vantage point of 500 feet. And on the other side was an army of 24,000 men led by an earl who was 70 years old and in that time that was old and their weapons weren't as good. In theory, on paper, we know who should have won that battle. However, the outcome of the battle depended on two things. Firstly, the relevancy of the weapons, and secondly, the ability to move with the times of the battle. You see, what happened was that the Earl took his army and went around the side, forcing the king's army to move from their vantage point onto ground that they did not know. What happened was the ground that they moved onto was marshy ground where they got stuck. They became an immobile army. And because they could not and would not move, their weapons were completely irrelevant. Do you know that day, it is thought that between 12 and 17,000 of the king's army died. The king himself lost his life and he failed to change the makeup of this nation as we know it today. All because... They couldn't move with the times of battle. Do you know that when we cease to move, a movement becomes an institution? And so we need to take stock of our weapons. Take a look at the ground that we are stood on. Brace ourselves and decide to step and move forwards for the sake of a generation.
0: You know, with the greatest of respect, our method is perfectly designed to get the results that we're getting. And when what we're doing isn't working, there's two things that we cannot do. One is to do nothing, and two is do what we've always done. Because when we do what we've always done, we get what we've always got. James Emery White says this, The coming force of Generation Z will inevitably challenge every church to rethink its strategy in the light of a cultural landscape that has shifted seismically. Friends, I'm so grateful for the people we heard some of their names yesterday who led us through the first hundred years. And I honor them and I'm inspired yeah. by them. But I want to tell you that what got us here won't take us there. Yeah. I believe that if Elam is to have a strong and thriving future as we imagine it together, we must now hear the signs of the times and adapt everything that we do to engage the next generation. And perhaps that sounds a little bit too extreme It's like, well, you obviously, you would say that because you're like the youth guy, right? (laughs) And and after all, what are you saying about the older generations in our churches? Are you you suggesting that we simply ignore them? No, that's not what I'm suggesting at all. To explain what I am suggesting, maybe for one final time before we wrap up, I can ask you to use your imagination. Imagine a dad and his son. And they're going to have a film night together. And uh, so they sit down, they've... They've popped their popcorn, they've got it in a bowl, it smells great. They draw the curtains, they open up Netflix, and they begin to scroll through Netflix, and they're going to decide what movie they're going to watch together. And the dad sees Die Hard. (laughs) And he says, Son, you have not yet seen Die Hard. Your world is empty. (laughs) I mean, it's Bruce Willis, he's wearing a vest. Christmas time, amazing. Let's watch Die Hard son's like, well, you're not really selling it to me, Dad. Maybe, maybe, let's keep scrolling through. And then they get to Toy Story. <laughs> and the son says to his dad, Dad, let's watch Toy Story again. <laughs> Which film are they going to watch? Toy Story. They're going to watch Toy Story again. <laughs> why? Here's why. Because in a family... In a loving family, in a healthy family, the older generations always defer to the preferences of the younger. This is the very essence of the sacrificial love which forms the foundation of healthy family life. Church, are we not a family? Elim, I believe if we want a strong and a thriving and a growing future, we must do the same. And do you know that when I imagine the future of the Elim movement, I imagine a progressive, vibrant, spirit-led missionary movement reaching every generation for Jesus. And as I travel around, I, I see it happening I see it. I hear the stories of hope. I I see the next generation rising up and living passionately and fearlessly for Jesus. Friends, I am filled with hope for our future. But make no mistake, that hope is dependent on change. Indeed, it is dependent upon movement. I will leave you with this final quote from R.T. Kendall who says that sometimes... The greatest opposition to what God wants to do next comes from the people who are on the cutting edge of what God did last. Elim, this will not be our story. This will not be our legacy. We will be more like the men of Issachar than we will be like the Pharisees. And so... As we imagine Elim's future one last time together this morning, I pray and I urge us that we would be continually, increasingly, authentically, and truly the very thing which God called us to be, a movement.
1: And so, Father, we pray that you will break our hearts again. Lord Jesus, let us see talent. Let us see potential. Father, let us perceive what you are doing in this nation. Lord Jesus, stop us from becoming stagnant. But Father, as a movement, let us move to the sound of your voice and the vision that you see. Father, let our greatest potential be in those that we raise up. We love you when we commit our future to you. And Lord Jesus, let us get out of the way that that might happen. Amen.